If you want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3, pretty much wrapped up last week where we saw Samuel was being called and we also saw how, how he was now being under the tutelage of God directly and, and we're going to move on from there. Um, it's 1 Samuel chapter 3 and let's look at uh, verse 10. Now, this is when Samuel was called. Remember, he was called three times by God, but even Eli, the high priest, didn't know it was God until he finally got the hint after the second time Samuel was called. And he says, look, go lay down. And if someone calls you again, it's got to be God. Tell him I'm here. What do you want? What do you, what do you want to tell me? So it even took Eli a little while, maybe because he was in a stupor of his sleep. He was going to be an older man anyway. Um, but so in verse 10, the Lord came and stood there. So this is the third time he calls Samuel, the third time. And it's like now the Lord is standing there. It's like, what does that mean? It's like, he's like, he's going to get right up to his ear maybe, you know, Samuel. So the Lord came and stood there calling at other time, as at the other time, Samuel, Samuel, exclamation points here. Uh, then Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. And you know, if you and I do that, speak for your servant is listening, Watch out, because you're going to hear from him. You're going to hear from him, and he's going to tell you what he wants you to do. And Samuel lives a devoted life as, as a priest, and now he's, he's a priest. But remember I said that technically priests are not supposed to come but through the line of Aaron, right? Samuel didn't come directly through the line of Aaron. There's, just, there's something special about, not, so the priesthood is not just something for the line of, of Aaron. I was going to say Arab, but it ain't that. Something for the line of Aaron, but there's something particular for the priests because who are kings and priests in the kingdom of God? Yeah. Right. Did any of us come through the line of Aaron directly? I know I didn't. I'm a Gentile from way back. So there you go. So this is just introducing that topic as far as I'm concerned, that the priesthood does not necessarily have to be this legalistic. It's got to be through the right line. Now, don't, don't misunderstand because we're going to see some issues. The Ark of the Covenant is going to come into focus here in a minute. And only the priests are supposed to handle the Ark of the Covenant, and then they're not supposed to even touch it. Okay, only the high priest goes in once a year when it was in the temple. This is no temple yet here, right? It's still in Shiloh. And there's going to be somebody, who's, we'll find out not today, but there's going to be somebody who's going to be put to death. Actually, we may talk about one of them today, but either way, because it was handled incorrectly. So be careful. That's what I'm saying. Just because we are, by grace, we are priests or counted as priests, but by the law, you've got to be careful. And in these days, let's face it, God's grace was shown, but in a different way. Right? The Holy Spirit didn't live in the people of Israel. And matter of fact, they were pretty, uh, pretty rejecting of God's Holy Spirit. So just wanted to give you that. Um, so God desires a close and intimate relationship with each of us individually. And Samuel now will grow in the, in the, word, in the, in the knowledge of the Lord. And it's going to say here through his word. Let's go to verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. Now, that's tantalizing, isn't it? Imagine God telling you, I'm going to tell you something that is going to make you go, wow. That's what he's basically saying. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. Now, Eli, remember, is the high priest at this time, and he's in Shiloh most of the time, and he's at the gate, right? Or at the, at the, temp, at the uh, tent gate there, the, the outer area of the temple, uh, the tent. Uh, for I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. And we talked about that last week. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli that 
the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Imagine that. That's how grievous this sin was. I think Felicia, she's not here today. She asked, when we first talked about this, when, what God said about what he was going to do to Eli and, his, and actually kill his sons both in the same day. And she said, is that a curse? Absolutely. And here, not only is it a curse, but he's saying here, there will be no backtracking. There will be no repentance. This is sort of like an unpardonable sin, if you will. So this is absolutely a curse. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of people who are cursed because they're going to hell with no redemption for them. We'll talk more about that in, in a little while, but just keep that in mind. That's a very important point. Um, verse 15. Samuel lay down until morning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision, but Eli called him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel answered, here I am. So now Eli calls him. And Samuel says, here I am, dutifully reporting, either to God or to Eli. He's a dutiful, dutiful young man. What was it he said to you? Now he's asking about, remember the three times God called him, and he knows God said something important to him. So now he's trying to figure this out. So what was it he said to you, Eli asked? Do not hide it from me. May God deal with you, be it ever so severely. Hey, be careful what you're asked for here, because it sounds like you're going to find out who, what severely means. Um, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. So Samuel, being this dutiful young man, uh, told him everything, hiding nothing from him. Then Eli said, He is the Lord, let him do what is good in his eyes. So Eli submitted to the fate that he knew awaited him. And so now we're going to roll out with the rest of the story here. But in verse 19 it says, The Lord was with Samuel, and he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. So now he's also in the line of the prophets as well. You see? This is the very important point here. Remember I told you he also started what many call the school of the prophets? This is really the beginning of the, of the whole prophet line here, if you will, from Moses on, uh, on down. Uh, 21, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, of course where the tent was and where the ark was, and there he revealed himself to Samuel by talking to him. What does it say? Through his word. Isn't that interesting? And the most important piece of thing, uh, the most important piece of, of uh, God that we have that was tangible is His Word. If you think of the Bible as, as something about God that you can actually touch and feel and manipulate, think of the Bible as that. That's what I've come to the conclusion. And love His Word. It's not just loving what you hear about Him. It's not just loving Him. Remember I told you last week that, that there, are, there are too many Christians, in my opinion, that are in love with the love. All the love, all the love, all the love. Well, sorry, that is not good enough. What is love? If we're just in love with feelings and happiness and Christmas and all wonderful things, that's fine. But that's not the point. Not the whole point by any stretch of the imagination. That's just the beginning. If we don't get beyond that, we're going to be misconstruing his, his intent. We're not going to understand what God wants. and We're not going to be of good service to Him. And I believe, personally, as Christians, we will be judged for that. We will be judged when, we, when, when the rewards are handed out, not unto death, not unto, you know, because salvation is a free gift. But if I go to God and I say, I just love being loved by the Lord and happy and saved. And he says, well, what have you done with it? I've told everybody about how much you love them. Okay, have you told them about me, what I've done? Well, I really didn't know that that well, but I know you love them. I told them about Christ. Yeah, but have you told them when they needed information specifically about my character and who I am and why things are the way they are? Were you able to tell them any of that? Well, I don't really, I just told him you love them. You see, isn't it like the parable of the talents? 
That's just, I buried it. I knew what I had when you gave it to me, and I buried it. Is Samuel is dedicated to God, and he learned, not just because he was in love with the Lord, and he was in the temple, he was, I mean, the tabernacle, and he was cared for, and he had stature, and he was growing in grace and knowledge. He dwelt on God's word. That's just a lesson for me, for sure, anyway. Chapter 4 and verse 1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. Remember I told you that there was going to be a couple of battles with the Philistines here. The first one they're going to lose. And not only are they going to lose, they're going to get trounced. And guess what? The Philistines are going to take the Ark of the Covenant. But they take it for a bad reason that Israel gave them actually access to it, if you will. Let's read on here. Um, the Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark. Ah, bad. Bad decision. Let us bring the ark of the covenant. See, they didn't inquire of the Lord, did they? Ah, I know. We'll go get the Lord and bring him over here. He'll help us. Wrong decision. Ask the Lord if that's what he wants you to do. And I would have guaranteed he would have said, no, you leave my Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh. I will help you. Leave my dwelling place where I put it. Do not dare take my dwelling place from where I put it. But this is not what happened, did it? Let's go on. Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of enemies. They're using this like a talisman. You know, it's like a rabbit's foot. Believe me, God, now you, watch what happens. God has got a sense of humor here too. Unfortunately, this sin hurts many, many people on both sides of the house here. By the way, do you remember who the Philistines were? Not only were they one of major, a major arch enemy, they were giants in the Philistines. We talked about that. We're going to talk about that more, especially when we get further down the scripture. But remember, these were not just your average warriors. These were huge beings. And not necessarily all human either, were they? We talked about that a lot. If you weren't here, it may be a new concept for some of you. But just because if it's, a, it's a new concept does not mean it's not true. So I will present the truth to you and you'll go read my notes. You'll find out more about it, especially in the first 40 or 50 pages of my notes because we talked about it. Because this concept of, d of DNA tampering by Satan for certain reasons has been going on since Genesis. All right? That's why there was a flood. Noah was perfect in his generations. Why? Because he was a great guy? No. He was perfect because his DNA was unaltered. He and his family were the only ones left that were truly human descendants from Adam without DNA altering. We talked about today with transhumanism and, gen and genome enhancement, right? There's a lot going on today that you know that there are also crossing species between animals and human beings. You think this is new? You think that human beings are smart enough to develop this technology? Oh, no. It's the Feustian uh, bargain. You ever hear the Feustian bargain? Anybody ever hear of that? Where Satan comes and says, I will give you this, and it will only cost you your soul. There's a lot more than meets the eye that's going on here. But we'll, we'll go on. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant down from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty who was enthroned between the cherubim. And, Eli, ah, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were bad. I mean, they weren't just you know, ill-informed. That's one thing. But when you're against the Lord... And you know it, you are a jerk. So, not you. I'm not saying you here. I'm not politically correct. You ever notice that? 
<laughs> That's why I ain't going to be preaching in the streets. They will definitely uh, shoot me here. But anyway, when the Ark of the Lord came, uh, cov- when the Ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all is- this is verse 5, by the way, uh, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. These people were really happy. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what all, what, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? They even heard it from wherever they were. When they learned that the Ark of the Covenant had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A God has come into the camp. Um, and they said, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who, deliver, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. They are gods. They are the gods. Now listen to this. It sounds like they don't know who this God is or the triune God, right? They call the gods or the God, right? It sounds like they know, but they do know one thing. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians. Hmm. Who was a God who did that? Only one. And remember, if you look at the plagues, we talked about this. If you look at the plagues, it was God actually doing, really like sort of trouncing their gods for the things that they were. It was, it was intent. The plagues were not just to find different ways of making the Egyptians suffer. It was, it was intent. It was, if you look at it, again, if you look at it, it's in my notes. These, so they knew the history here. They probably knew about the plagues, and they probably knew what happened in those plagues, that these gods were specifically targeted by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation. But anyway, so they know who they're talking about here. Isn't that interesting? So they are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. See, don't recognize this God. Double down now. Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Doesn't it sound today like those nations that are surrounding Israel? Now, the difference is, is that a lot of them are related to Israel back from being cousins, you know, the Arabs and so forth. But it's the same thing. They recognize who God is, but they don't care. Let's double down. Let's, let's trounce them. Make sure that they trounce them. Okay. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. So now it looks like the Philistines were able to muster up their own courage and, and they did it. They actually beat this God who was, by the way, the ones who caused the Egyptian plagues. That's not very good as far as um, uh, noting who God is if you don't know him, right? It sounds like God got defeated. Or God's people got defeated. So God is not going to treat this lightly. And of course, he, they got, Israel got trounced because God allowed it. So you see, every time we do something wrong or we do something against God, it's not just making Him sad. It's blaspheming Him. When you and I do something sinful, it's blaspheming against God. Mainly, mainly because other people will know it. If you and I are living lives or doing things in secret, you know, well, be careful because the things you do in secret and I do in secret may come out one day. And you're going to have to be embarrassed in front of a whole bunch of people and some Christians who maybe look up to you, all of a sudden your life will be altered in an instant for the rest of your time here. Not that you won't be forgiven. But you've also now trounced God's name as well. Not a good thing. Now, God doesn't do the things He does today most of the time to us because we're forgiven. But do you want to do that to your father? I don't. And that's one of the main things that keeps me running the straight and narrow as best I can. It's not the fear of retribution is the fear of, of my losing whatever stature I may have among people, among men, and among Christians, whatever that might be, and knowing that, that they see God, and especially Jesus Christ, through me. That's a very serious thing for all of us. That's what keeps me going mostly. I'll tell you the truth. It keeps me going mostly. It, keeps, it makes me avoid most sin in my life as best I can. 
and repent very quickly of the things that I do, keeping short lists with God, not just for my own selfish reasons, although I'm sure that plays a part in it. I want the best reward I can have. But it's because I have to represent my God. Now look at my buddy Eric I just told you about. If that man ever saw me do something wrong or found out that I was doing something evil, what do you think that would do to him? That would break his heart. He's already had people do evil things to him. And here he has a friend who's leading him to someone who loves him and will take care of him and will give him eternal life once he starts asking me more about Christ. And we go there, and I'm sure we will. And then he finds out that I'm just a jerk, that I'm just a, a, I'm a politician. I, I, I look good on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. Is that what I want? No, I don't. This is serious stuff, serious stuff. So it says, uh, the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, 30,000 men that day. And 11, the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And what happened next? Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Just as God said on that very same day, he lost both his sons. So both of them died on the same day. The Ark of the Covenant was taken. The Ark of the Covenant, what is the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, what was it to Israel? It held the Ten Commandments. It held the Ten Commandments. And that's true. It also held Aaron's budding rod, didn't it? It also held some manna, didn't it? But what was the most important feature of the Ark of the Covenant? What did it serve? What was its main purpose, I guess? You're absolutely right. And those were very important pieces of it. What? It was the dwelling place of God. Absolutely. It was the dwelling place of God. It was God's dwelling among His people on the earth. That's an important place. And that's before the temple came, which we know the Holy of Holies. You know, we talked about the high priest having to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. They used to tie a rope to him and bells so that they stopped hearing the bells ring and they knew that he did something wrong and God killed him. The one time he was only allowed to go in there. But what happened when Christ died? When Christ died. And now every one of us has access to the Holy of Holies. Do you understand the import of that? But this is the beginning of this whole concept and the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the temple as well, right? Okay. But here, so now, so it came true that Hophni and Phinehas are now dead. Now listen to what happens next. By the way, I, I mentioned to you that, and, and I want to bring this out now because we're going to find out more about it. The Ark of the Covenant, I said to you, was only allowed to be moved when it was going to be moved by the priests. Now, Eli's sons were priests, weren't they? And they moved the ark. But they didn't do it right. And they didn't do it for the right reasons. And by the way, when it was moved for the right reasons, which we'll find out later on, um, they were only allowed to move it. Remember when it was built, if you look at the, the, the accounts in, in, in Exodus, uh, that when it was built, when it was designed, there were loops, gold loops, on each, there were, there were two on each side. And then they had these long acacia wood poles. I had to think about that for a second. Acacia wood poles. And the poles themselves were clad in gold. And those poles were used to put through those rings. And then you had two men in the front, priests, and two men in the back. And then they would lift it up and they would carry it. They would not touch that ark. They would not touch it. Never mind, think about looking into it or anything else. And we're going to see some incidences a little later on where the ark was touched. And like I said, people died because of that. And, but there was also a time when the ark was moved and put in somebody's home as well. Isn't that interesting? Here's the point, before we get into that, I just want to make it clear to you. The ark is a very holy thing, and you could die touching it, right? You could die servicing it in the wrong way, even if you were a priest. But yet, when the, you see that it was taken by the Philistines, when it was brought back, we'll get into that in a minute, but when it was brought back, it was brought to a private home, and it stayed there for a while. 
Can you imagine God dwelling, this magnificence of God being with a simple family? Doesn't that tell you a lot about the, the foretype of Jesus Christ and the Holy of Holies and what it means to Him to be a humble servant and yet the master of the universe, to be adored and to be worshipped and to be, to be looked upon as holy and you can't look at Him? You see the, the, the contrast here? That's what's a wonderful story about this Ark of the Covenant. That's the way I look at it anyway. Yeah. Absolutely. And that the obedience that we require is actually you know, obedient to us, is obedient to God, and uh, always bringing back instead. Because everybody says you have to be the best example to your children. That's right. But as much as important is not just to give the example, but um, correct your children. Mm -hmm. so, because I truly believe that similar, um, that the this case, um, Eli's children and Kinaeus, they, they, they sinned against the Holy Spirit and that's why they weren't forgiven yep. and that's what the Bible says that that's the only sin that mm -hmm. is not forgiven yep. and um, it goes very well with parents yeah, it's a willful rejection of when you know who God is and it's the same thing. If children know the authority of the parent, I think it's even built into children to have to be rolling up to somebody. The first thing is the first thing they want is someone to provide for them. And they'll know that you and, and I as parents will provide for them. But they have to, then when they learn that we are their authority, and if they don't do that, then God will deal with them too. You know? but, so I think, I think you're right in teaching it because it does show a model here, doesn't it? It shows, it shows a model. And you'll find out later on too, and there's a, I think you brought it up, Rachel, there's a problem with a lot of priests, even especially David too, which was not a priest, but the kings and the priests, they were so about their duty and so about their being too selfish with it that you're going to find out even Samuel's children later on were not that great. And, and, and Israel's going to clamor for a king because of these guys. So even when you, when you just pretty much don't teach your children anything and let them grow like weeds, yes, you're going to have the problem. And, and this is the result of that, I believe, or not enforcing it. But I got to believe that Samuel was probably a, a better intentional dad. Because remember, Eli wasn't a bad guy. He was a good priest. Samuel is going to be an excellent usable priest and, and now prophet, right? But he went about his duties so much he didn't raise his children right. And I think that's, that's really what you're seeing here. And that's, that's a very good way of, of looking at this book. And so we'll find that out later on. So absolutely right. Very good point. So now listen, speaking about Eli. Now he's going to find out his sons were, were killed. That Remember what Samuel told him had come true. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh. So now this, the, the, the ark is gone. But Shiloh, he went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust in his head, on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of the covenant. I mean, he knew that the covenant was, was, was gone, was taken. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I fled from it this very day. Doesn't it sound like the account of Job, by the way? Remember when all those bad things happened to Job's family? And what happens? Only one servant runs. I was the only one to survive to bring you this bad news. 
It's a tool God uses. He had to send a messenger. So here's another guy running to him, just like the servants in, in the book of Job, right? I was the only one who survived, and I told you, you know, they, they stole all your cattle and did all this, and then later on when they destroyed the houses and, and his family, another one comes. I'm the only one who escaped to bring you this news. That's what happened here. So Eli asked, what happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. Isn't that interesting? His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the woman attending, the woman attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or even pay attention. That's how distraught she was about all of this. She named the boy Ichabod. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, the glory is a part of Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Boy, what a prophecy that is, huh? So what a tragedy. So now the ark is in the hands of one of Israel's staunchest enemies, and all that God said would happen to Eli's sons, and by extension, uh, even his daughter-in-law, and so on, uh, had taken place. The judgment against Eli's family had not only taken place as predicted, but within the context of the very ark of the covenant, being taken away. It's sort of like he was high priest. One of his major things was ministering to the Ark of the Covenant. And because he really, he really and his sons just messed the whole thing up, it was the taking of the Ark of the Covenant that was the, co the catalyst for all of this problem, including him and his sons dying. And, and, uh, and also the problems with his uh, daughter-in-law and so forth. Uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. But this is not the end of the story of the Ark of the Covenant. This is only the beginning. This is really, it's really something here. Chapter 5 and verse 1. After the Philistine had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple. Now, Dagon was one of their primary deities here. Now, this God has got a sense of humor, let me tell you, because what, listen to what happens here now. They carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face and on the ground before, or actually felling, fell toward the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that hilarious? <laughs> they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And this time, his head and hands had been broken off and were laying on the threshold, only his body remained. No mind, no head, no thought, and no hands. He's an ineffective God as he really was. I, I think that sounds like to me what, what, why God did it that way. That is why this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Verse 6, The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Now I'm just going to summarize some of the rest of Scripture here. The Philistines had five primary cities, and each of them, uh, and, and each time they moved the ark, they, they kept on moving this ark, right? Remember they also knew about these things called plagues that God did to Egypt, right? Well, every time they moved the ark among the five cities, plagues of mice and, believe it or not, hemorrhoids. Some versions say tumors, but if you look at the, the word, it's, it's uh, tekora, which means hemorrhoids, really, is what it is. And you look at some commentaries, and a lot of them say hemorrhoids, and really that was the intent. Uh, so they had mice and they had hemorrhoids. Oof. 
The priests told them that they cannot return the ark without a guilt offering because they wanted to get rid of the ark now. This, this has been traversing through five of their cities and they're having mice and hemorrhoids. It's like, it's painful. They had no preparation H in those days. <laughs> I don't know what they did for hemorrhoids in those days. <laughs> so they figured out they got to get rid of this ark because this is the thing that is, is giving them their, their problems here, right? So their priests figure out how to do this. And they say the priest told them that they cannot return the ark without a guilt offering. So they also knew the concept of offerings. See how they, they deny the God that they learn these concepts from. So they put five golden mice and five golden hemorrhoids. Yep, five golden hemorrhoids. They made models of the mice and models of the hemorrhoids. They did. This is what, this is what history says. Into a small chest and sent that along with the ark back to the camps of Israel. <laughs> Can you believe it? So let's go to First Samuel chapter 6 and verse 21. I just summarized a, a portion. By the way, in my notes is a map. I put a map in there that shows where Shiloh is to the north and east of, of where the, uh, the uh, ark ended up in Kiliath-Jerim. But we're going to talk about that. But that's where it ended up when it came back. So you see, it, it never made it back to Shiloh. So they sent messages to the people of Kiriath-Jerim saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your place. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim uh, Kiriath came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. So now the ark is back. It's not at Shiloh, but it's back in their possession anyway. It was a long time, 20 years in all, in all that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord, now listen to this, with all your hearts, all your hearts, and rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and the Ashtaroths and serve mm. the Lord only. Again, it sounds kind of selfish here because they really didn't want to do this, right? But they figured, hey, you know, the, the, uh, the rabbit's foot we put out there didn't work, so let's try actually to obey the Lord and, and worship Him only. See how that works. Um, we'll wrap up in a minute. <clears throat> then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mitzpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mitzpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them because they're feeling pretty good now, aren't they, after all of this? And they gave that ark back too, so maybe their bad luck and their hemorrhoids are all gone now. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Now they're really relying on the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle, Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. Sounds like what he's done before, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. The men of Israel, uh, Israel rushed out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point of beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far, thus, far, thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel ter Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath 
uh, that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. See, they even were able, powerful enough now to protect the other territories too. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So we're going to stop here today. We're going to continue on. We're also going to be talking next week. So this is a very important feature next week. Samuel gets older, and there's also problems with his sons, as I said. So Israel decides, enough with the judges. We want a monarchy. And so we're going to see them clamoring for a king. And what I mentioned last week is what we're going to go over next week. God says, after all is said and done, okay, Samuel, tell them they can have their king. But warn them about what a king will do. And it's amazing because what we're going to read next week is so prophetic. And you can map it in directly to any government, especially our government in this nation today, of what they do and what this government's doing. And we want to serve a king. Well, it's not a right thing. So, anyway, we'll talk more about that next week. Have a wonderful week. Is yeah. it two weeks? Oh, it's two weeks? Oh, wait, wait, yes, that's right.